From the Jesuits of Canada and the United States, this is AMDG. I'm Mike Jordan-Lasky. Over the past couple of weeks, there have been countless reflections on the life and work of Pope Emeritus Benedict XVI. I've appreciated reading about his rich theological writings and his decades of church service. I've even liked reading about some of the challenging moments he had to face, with varying levels of success, admittedly, before, during, and after his papacy. He just did so much. He was a complex man, so much experience, and I pray that after that long life, he might now rest in the peace of Christ forever. Whenever a world historical event happens related to the papacy, I like to call up my friend Dr. Christopher Bolido. Chris is a medievalist, a church historian, and a professor of history at Kane University in New Jersey. He's a frequent media commentator on church history and contemporary Catholicism, and you might have seen him quoted in recent days in the Washington Post, CNN, NBC, and other outlets. I always appreciate the long view Chris brings to current events as a scholar of history. We talked a bit about the history of papal resignations and what lessons the church might learn from how Benedict's post-papacy unfolded. We also talked a bit about the history of Jesuit superior general resignations, and he told me about his upcoming book from Georgetown University Press titled Humility, The Secret History of a Lost Virtue. You can subscribe to AMDG wherever you get podcasts, and thanks for joining us. Well, Dr. Christopher Bolito, welcome to AMDG. Thanks so much for taking the time. How are you? I'm doing well. Thanks for having me back. Yeah, no, absolutely. It's uh, nice to connect with you again. Uh, in between your many interviews, I've seen you all over the place talking about Pope Benedict and the history of the papacy and Pope Francis and all kinds of things, writing, talking, doing all that stuff. So um, I appreciate your making time for the Jesuits. Uh, and so I want to jump right in uh, and... And we want to talk a little bit about Pope Benedict, especially focusing on his post-papacy era. But before we kind of get into some of that, I do think it's, it's worthwhile kind of going back in time, which is now almost 10 years ago, which is hard to believe. And you and I actually met for the first time. I don't know if you remember this. At a conference in Washington, do, like the right? day— In a snowstorm. Day, in the snowstorm, like the day after— he announced he was going to resign. I mean, it was the, it, right then everyone was like kind of reeling. It was a good place to be when he, that announcement came out because you're surrounded. I, I mean, uh, Cardinal Sean O'Malley was there. A lot of people were at this meeting and, uh, and that's where we met for the first time. And um, so that was that was pretty wild. Um, so let's go back in time if we could, just those 10 years, help us remember that time and why at this now it seems like oh yeah i mean people resign from things it seems like it, it happens they retire but at the time it really it was like this kind of earth-shattering decision it was it was stunning it was earth-shattering you know my own story is that i woke up our our daughter was uh eight at that point seven and uh, i usually get her moving in the morning and i turned on my cell phone <clears throat> and there was a text from a friend that said the pope just messed up your day and I presumed that he had passed away, went on CNN, Pope resigns. And I woke my wife up to tell her, you know, she had to take the lead to, to get Grace on the bus. And uh, I said, the Pope resigns, I got to go to work. And she said, can he do that? And uh, that was basically the next 10, answering that question was the next 10 days of my life. So uh, everybody ran back to Celestine V, who was the, the Pope a hermit for six months, who resigned in 1294. He's the most 
famous pope who resigned because Dante, who was no fan of his, called his action the great refusal, the gran refuto, and in and in um, his Divine Comedy places uh, Celestine at at the, kind of the threshold of hell, at the spot reserved for people who did nothing good or bad in their lives. They were just <laughs> nobodies. Um, but the uh, had popes resigned before? Yes, about about a good handful. The first one was in the year 235, a pope by the name of Pontian, who uh, remember Christianity is illegal in the Roman Empire at the time. And he was going to be sent to a, a prison colony on Sardinia, knew he would die there and was afraid that word wouldn't get back. So he resigned so that somebody could take his place before he left. But the last papal resignation before Benedict the Sixteenth was uh, in 1415, Gregory the Twelfth, the Roman Pope. This is when there were three popes, one pope in Avignon, one pope in Rome, another one moving around what's been called the here a pope there a pope everywhere a pope pope chapter of church history and gregory the 12th who who may canon lawyers still argue about this but who may have had the best claim to be the true pope kind of falls on his sword and uh and and resigns and is treated with great respect afterwards at, uh, as a cardinal lives on uh, about two more years um and so that was the, the that was the answer. Could a pope resign? That now the the paperwork, the canon law is very odd. It says that the a pope may resign as long as he does so freely, and uh, the that that uh, resignation need not be accepted by anyone. Now nobody really knows what that means. And now that we've had, you know, Benedict was was a. a Pope Emeritus longer than he was a pope. So obviously the next logical thing, and we can get into this later, is, you know, what are the protocols? What have we learned from this period to make a post-papacy better next time? Sure. So, yeah, I mean, remember at the time, too, there was a lot of thinking about, like, what was there some kind of conspiracy about why this is happening? Um, it did seem like he was just kind of beaten down by... Uh, the, a lot of the dysfunction, betrayals, like running that. I mean, he was the theologian, academic, right? I don't, I don't and I, he had been a long life in service and kind of bureaucratic leadership, but like, I don't, it just seemed like he was worn down by that. And so I don't, I don't know. There's that, for me, it was, it was the word that keeps coming up now is a sense of humility is that when you have the, like kind of this power and then you voluntarily give it up despite the circumstance, whatever the circumstances, that there's there's something there that's worth learning from. Well, um, if you read the letter that that um, Celestine wrote in 1294 after six months as Pope, if you read that letter and then you read the resignation statement of Benedict the Thirteenth, they're very much in sync. Um, they basically say, I realize I can't do this job anymore and for the good of the church, I'm going to step down. I mean, my first thought was your thought, right? Humility is still a virtue. Um, I'm, I have a book on humility coming out uh, in July, and uh, there he is. I mean, he, he he's in there for mm. this uh, for this action. I'm not sure that he wanted to be pope. I'm not sure that he expected to be pope. I have heard some people comparing Pope Francis's homily at the funeral of Benedict the Sixteenth, which was a very small, quiet homily to the homily that Cardinal Ratzinger gave um, at Pope John Paul II's uh, funeral. And someone said that that, that that read or sounded like a campaign speech, even if it wasn't his campaign speech. And, and I recall um, when the white smoke occurred 
in 2005 and they announced that it was Joseph Cardinal Ratzinger, I was doing Bloomberg Radio Live and they asked me for an immediate reaction. And my immediate reaction was, well, the Cardinals decided not to decide. Um, and so the papacy of Benedict XVI was really the epilogue or the coda of the papacy of John Paul II. And you have to kind of put this all together because Ratzinger, Cardinal Ratzinger was head of the Congregation for the Doctrine of the Faith for 24 of the 27 years of the John Paul II papacy. And so he did make some adjustments. I was actually surprised to hear his tone change a little bit in some of his writings at Deus Caritas Est, which is probably his crowning achievement, um, that and the three volumes on, on, uh, on Jesus. Uh, it's not quite as academic writing. Um, it's not quite as kind of chunka, 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 you know, the, the systematics that make people hate academic writing. Uh, and so I think to that degree, he grew into the role, but he was very uncomfortable, I think, as Pope. He was, he was, he was the right man for the wrong time. So hmm. after the Council of Trent in the 16th century and up until the modern times, you had these kind of popes who presided and and. You know, he was a scholar pope. He was a professor pope. In fact, he reminded me more of Benedict the Fourteenth, um, a cardinal by the name of Lambertini, who was the expert on canonization. And we still follow many of the rules and uh, uh, methodologies that he laid down in the 1700s when deciding on saints. Mm. And just, I mean, thinking of, of this time and you know, being on the radio and. And then, you know, flash forward the eight years and those decisions and then being asked, like, can this happen? It's being so surprised. But then, like, I remember, I think learning from you was that I learned that there have been kind of three popes at once. Right. I, I didn't know that my church history is slim, like a lot of Catholics, I guess. But uh, I don't know. For me, it's always helpful to have that historical perspective that you can pull back and see, like, things that are challenging or new or feel new or feel like, how could this possibly happen? We've done things have happened in the church that are wilder. Uh, just can you imagine if there were actually three? I mean, there's all the talk of like schism now, right? Like, oh, we're gonna have this this schismatic church. Like maybe, but like there's been crazier stuff. There's been a lot, like, yeah. a lot of crazier stuff. And and it's a lot of the whole notion that there are two popes, that there were two popes, is utter nonsense. And uh, I really put that at the feet of the proponents of Benedict, who you know couldn't get over the fact that the Pope that they love resigned. Uh, and reportedly, Austin Ivory in his uh, kind of second biography of Pope Francis, Wounded Shepherd, reports that Benedict had no time uh, and was very abrupt and curt and shut off uh, criticism of Francis from people who wanted to say that um, privately. I think the problem was the people around Benedict who, um, you know, as you get older, people love you and people, the people who love you are supposed to protect you. And there were some moments where uh, Benedict promised to go away, to hide, to be silent. And he did not live up to that promise. Now, I think if he's giving interviews and he's publishing and he's writing, then then that's really his fault. But then you get this really weird letter that came out in April of 2019. So if you remember in February, maybe it was March of 2019, Francis had a summit on where do we stand right now on fighting the clergy sex abuse scandal. And the, the key question, the key next question is, how do we go about punishing not only the pedophile criminals, um, but the bishops who moved them around? And so there were 
statements that came out and everyone said, okay, this is really good. This is like, you know, where we are 20 years into it. And then a letter came out purportedly under his hands that, that undercut all of those assumptions and went back to, this is a problem of gay priests and this is the 1960s. But if you read that letter, it did not sound like the pen of Joseph Ratzinger. I think it was the the cobbled together musings of, of a man, a great man of diminishing capacity um, by people around him. Now, his his second in command, Archbishop Ganswein, insisted that Benedict wrote that letter. Um, I'm not so sure. So I think that can lead us maybe into kind of reflecting on this period. As you said, longer than his papacy, the time after he had resigned, uh, close to 10 years, not, not quite the 10-year mark. And um, knowing, too, that people are getting older, and I, apparently there's word that Pope Francis, if he's not he's not immediately planning to resign, but like has made some preparations in case it ever comes to that, uh, and has, I'm sure thought about it, um, as people get older and don't have the capacity they might have had as younger people. You could see this happening again, that there's been this precedent reestablished and that this could happen again. So I think a good question for us to think about is, well, how did this go in general, this post-papacy, the emeritus papacy period? And then what could we learn as a community, church community? Not like any of us will necessarily be making this decision for ourselves, but what, what might be some things we'd want to look for? I think it's even interesting to think about in, in leadership how do you have succession? And then how, if you have kind of someone who had been that emer- that role, become an emeritus role, what that looks like in a way that is not confusing, uh, that helps build up communion in the church. Um, so I'm interested in your reflections as a historian and as kind of someone watching current events unfold, um, your take on this era, some things we learned uh, and things we might want to do differently next time. Well, to be blunt, uh, the question, how do we do the next post-papacy, the answer is not like the one we just had. Um, but we only had it. The last one was 600 years ago. So I think we can forgive Benedict some of his decisions. Some of them were bizarre. I mean, when asked why he continued to wear white, he said there were no other clothes available in my size in the Vatican. I, I just don't know how to respond to that statement. He came up with the title Pope Emeritus, which makes a lot of sense from a professor, right? So when a woman or a man retires after a long career, their their professor emerita or emeritus kind of makes sense. Uh, probably better to call him Bishop of Rome emeritus because we have plenty of examples of a Bishop emeritus. A man turns 75 or before or after based on his uh, health and stays in the diocese. Uh, you have a pastor sometimes emeritus. So these these are all good examples that exist already. We seem to do just fine in the United States uh, with, uh, uh, you know, as uh, Barack Obama once said, we only have one president at a time, one prime minister at a time. I think one of the reasons why the funeral was kind of um, low key was, A, because that's what Benedict wanted. And my response, by the way, to the people who say that Francis did not give Benedict a big enough send off is tough because Benedict said he wanted a small send off. And so this may be what it looks like in the future. The death of a sitting pope is different than the death of a former pope. So certainly the pope can't wear white. He should be called Bishop of Rome Emeritus. He remains a bishop, so he should go back to wearing his robes as a bishop, black with the purple bunting. Maybe we'll let him wear the white zucchetto or skullcap as a little reminder. Um, I think that 
he should no longer use his papal name. When a man is elected pope, he's asked two questions. Uh, do you accept election? And by what name will you be called? Well, if, you, if Benedict is no longer pope, then he's no longer Benedict. And so I would go back to his first name to keep that style, right? Um, and uh, so in the case of Francis, he would be Bishop Jorge or Jorge Mario, um, Bishop of Rome uh, Emeritus. And also he cannot write anymore. Uh, even though Benedict was very clear when he wrote the three-volume history uh, discussion of Jesus as Pope, which was probably his retirement plan as Cardinal, he says in the preface that, that this is the, the writings of a private theologian and not the, the magisterial statement of a Pope. Well, that that may mean something to the, the couple of hundred people who understand that, but to the rest of the world, a man who is still in white, who is publishing a book where the publisher puts Pope Benedict XVI on, why? Because the publisher wants to make money. Um, it, it's really not clear. And so I don't think, and, and it's interesting because he wrote several things and was interviewed and sometimes he was called Pope Emeritus and sometimes he signed it Joseph Ratzinger. Um, so this needs to be clarified. So I think you don't wear white, you go by your own first name as a Bishop Emeritus of Rome, and you do not communicate with the outside world except in close coordination with the current Pope's communications team. For me, those are the big three lessons to come out. So why, Beyond why, that, let me if, stop you. Can I, can I interrupt? I just it's like, uh, why does that, why does that matter? I can see why the writing would matter. Um, that we don't want like someone who's writing in a way that people would then confuse with the current pope or not understand how it fits in. Um, but like the white and the name and the title, why, why do you think those things are important? Those seem like small potatoes to me. Convince me. Yeah, I'm going to disagree. I think they're really big potatoes. Uh, there are some people who say that it's not confusing. Walk into any parish and ask around and they'll tell you that there were two popes. Um, and so in a world where we live on our phones with little icons and symbols and nobody's using words anymore, the visual is far more important. Uh, mm -hmm. When I teach my courses in um, medieval uh, European history, I always you know, remind people at the very, very high illiteracy levels and say what I see is what I know. Mm -hmm. And that's completely true um, today. And so I think it's absolutely critically it, it would it would instantly, instantly say the man in white is Pope. The man not in white is the former Pope. It would be very, very. In fact, it would be clearer than two uh, than a sitting American president standing next to a former American president, both of them wearing suits because there is no sign of office hmm. um, that our president wears. Right. OK. All right. I was the just you know, setting you up to see. That I think it raises, though, is the issue of incapacity. Um, so I think that when Cardinal Ratzinger was watching John Paul II die, and if you remember, it was very difficult. So the Parkinson's just destroyed his body after the late 90s. Uh, he willed himself to live through the Jubilee year. That was the, the crowning achievement there um, of, his, uh, of his papacy, I think. Uh, and going to Jerusalem and asking God for forgiveness for the sins and crimes visited by Christians upon Jews. You know, that, that, that epic image of John Paul II putting his hands on the Western Wall of uh, the Temple Mount in Jerusalem. 
Um, and then from January to April of 2005, he was back and forth to the hospital several times. And in fact, the last week of his death, uh, we saw him on Easter Sunday, and then he died uh, Saturday, so six days later. Was If you remember, we can all identify with watching a, a beloved elderly relative pass away, you know, to the point where sometimes we say, go, it's okay. So-and-so is waiting for you. You've lived a good life. We'll, we'll be fine without you. We know you're with us. Um, well, what happens if John Paul II fell into a persistent vegetative state? I think our listeners might be surprised to find that there are zero regulations. There is no co-pope. There is no former pope. If a president of the United States, God forbid, whoever that president is, falls into a persistent vegetative state, we have the 25th Amendment. I don't know, but I'm sure other modern democracies have similar protocols in place. We don't. And so now, as part of what I hope will be a papal commission studying a post-papacy, we need to talk about that as well. If you write a contingent letter, such as we know Paul VI did, John Paul II did twice, and both Benedict and Francis said they did, um, in the event of an incapacity, I resign as pope, who says when that moment occurs? We, we don't know. A delegation of cardinals is the obvious thing, but that's not written anywhere. Hmm. So you, the idea would be then to you could set up something that would actually some that would have some kind of power to be able to make that decision. You'd have to. I mean, you, if, if a pope falls into a coma and there is no DNR or living will or healthcare proxy, we could be in a situation for years with an incapacitated pope. It reminds me of, I, well, we could get into some Jesuit leadership questions too, because in some ways, analogous in that it's a large, you know, faith-based organization not within the church, religious institute in the church, and has a leader uh, you know, elected by Jesuits the Father General, Superior General, and they're one of the most famous ones ever, Pedro Arupe. Um, he he suffered a, a stroke and was largely incapacitated in the early 1980s. Uh, and and then they had to, again, decide what they were going to do. And I, I don't know if you know any of that story or uh, could share any details there. But the, yeah, that, that was one case in which he, I guess, was not, I wouldn't say in a vegetative state, but had lost a lot of his language and obviously couldn't really lead the same way. And so he did resign, but the first ever Jesuit superior general to resign, but it was a couple of years after. Is that right? Yeah. Well, what's interesting is that he was thinking of resigning even before the stroke. So um, the American Jesuit uh, from New Jersey, let me say, uh, Vincent O'Keefe, who was basically the second in command, uh, re have related a story in an oral in an oral history years later that in the, in uh, 1980, uh, Father Arupe and and John Paul II was very distrustful of the Jesuits and particularly of Pedro Arupe um, squeezed in. I mean, he uh, Father Arupe couldn't even get an audience with John Paul II, and he had written a memo in which he said, and finally they had a 13-minute meeting, as Father O'Keefe relates, um, that he was thinking of resigning. This would have been 1980. And John Paul II said, well, where do I fit in here? What if I say no? And Father O'Keefe reports that Father Rupe said, well, you are the superior. If you say I can't resign, then I can't resign. And they wanted to kind of keep talking about this um, and this progressed 
But then in May of 1981, John Paul II survived an assassination attempt in August of 1981, while John Paul II was still recuperating, Father Arupe had this debilitating stroke. So that conversation kind of went moot. Um, and uh, I don't know, I would have to look this up as to whether Father Arupe was the first Father General to resign. I oh, he was, yeah, he was. He yeah, was, I yeah. think he was. Um, but then what he did was kind of open the door because Father Adolfo Nicolas, uh, two generals ago, retired. So did uh, Father Kovenbach. In between yeah. was Peter Hans Kovenbach. So that uh, Kovenbach uh, eventually um, succeeded uh, Arupe. He resigned. And so what I'm thinking of is the statement that Francis made. I'm wondering if Francis, ever the Jesuit, uh, right? The three things you need to know about Francis. He's a Jesuit, he's a Jesuit, and he's a Jesuit, uh, despite his strange relationship um, at times in his history with the community. Um, maybe he had this model in, in, involved, but, uh, in mind, but what he said in, um, in an interview was that Benedict's resignation, now remember this traditional conservative, right, you know, man of the, the old Renaissance monarch, um, Benedict, if he resigns, like Nixon going to China, right, he immediately legitimates the action. He makes it, you know, credible immediately, right? And so Francis used the word institution, that Benedict has now made this an institution. And that's why I hope that he's going to have a committee now to discuss this, because you can't have an institution without rules um, and procedures. And, and he says the door is open and other people may follow. And he said, you know, he's basic. Francis has basically said, I'm going to do this job as long as I can. But when I can't, there's nothing to stop me from resigning. Now, my own thinking, and I'm an historian, not a prophet, was that he would not resign when Benedict XVI was still alive. Um, and the Synod on Synods is his big achievement. It's the culminating event, I think, of his papacy. That was originally for October 2023, now October 2024. So I'm thinking that he might resign early in 2025. So you've been going on a lot of different TV shows, radio, writing things. I'm just curious if there are any other kind of themes that have come up for you and things you've been asked that are uh, that you have been have been sharing that you think are are worth our listeners hearing. Well, I think this notion that is kind of the day after story, the day after the funeral story, right, is the, the idea that Francis is now going to somehow be unbound because Benedict is no longer alive, I think is utter nonsense, uh, no, matter, no matter how important the publication is um, that puts out uh, reporting on this. Uh, he has already, he, Francis, has already shown that he has no problem firing people who don't agree with his vision. We think of Cardinal Raymond Burke, the American. We think of Cardinal Pell. We think of Archbishop Vigano, the nuncio to the United States. He's also has no problem knocking people out that he's put in place, like his vicar for the Diocese of Rome, like his good friend who's totally on it, you know, on board with his vision, Cardinal Tegel from the Philippines, who was in charge of Caritas International. And a few months ago, Francis uh, responded to many complaints about poor management at the top by decapitating Caritas International. So 
he's not afraid to knock out the people uh, who work with him or work against him. Uh, I really, I, I simply think that that is a story that's being perpetuated by people who don't like Francis. And they're going to say, oh, now, now look what he's doing. Well, look what he's been doing. He wasn't held back in any way. My concern are the people who may, may have been curtailed by Benedict's loyalty to Francis personally, and who, you know, very ironically, we have this group of people who in, in the papacy of John Paul II and Benedict XVI basically said that if the Pope sneezes, you have to agree with him. And then, and, and if you don't, you need to shut up, but they have no problem complaining openly and loudly about Francis. The irony is that they are enjoying an amnesty that they denied to, to other people. I think some of those people will be far more louder, uh, far, far louder and disrespectful to the uh, current Pope. And, and that includes, you know, major Catholic television networks like EWTN that are in open dissent. Hmm. You mentioned uh, briefly the uh, the synod, and that is one thing we've we've had a few episodes on here on the show. We've had Sister Natalie Beckar, uh, we've had Jesuit Father James Hanvey, who's in Rome working on the synod. And I'm interested for you, kind of again historically looking at how popes lead, uh, and then seeing the, the synod, this kind of worldwide consultation process. What if you have any uh, perspective on on that synod, kind of uh, within its within history, church history, if that's, is that something that, it feels unprecedented, is that, is that fair? Um, are, what, what about it has struck you? Well, a couple of things. The first is that people gathering together to talk about common problems and best practices and worst mistakes has been with us from the beginning of the church. You know, the first four church councils, starting with the Council of Nicaea in 325, they're really one big council stretched out over a couple of hundred years asking, who is Jesus? And uh, since Jesus is fully human and fully divine, is he one person? Is he two people? What's the implication for Mary? Is she the mother of God or is she the mother of the human Jesus? Um, and so how did people do that? They got together and they talked. Um, so synodality, this action of, of asking what's going on and then coming together from the periphery to the center and then out again to the periphery is very, very ancient. So the synod is absolutely nothing new. Even Pope Innocent III uh, in the early 1200s, who probably was, you know, the, the last man to claim to be Lord of Europe, uh, when he called the Fourth Lateran Council in 1215, he called it about two and a half years earlier. And the letter that he sent to bishops was, ask around, see what people are talking about, and come to Rome. Um, and, and let's talk about that. So that's one piece of the puzzle. The second piece of the puzzle is with the death of Joseph Ratzinger, Benedict XVI, you now end the period of time where you had leaders in the church who were at Vatican II. So Joseph Ratzinger was a peritus or an expert in theology at Vatican II, drafted some of the documents. Carol Wojtyla, the so one of the so-called boy bishops, because they were like 37 or 38 um, when they attended. Um, so these are fathers of the council. Jorge Mario Bergoglio was ordained in 1969. He's a son of the council, right? So if you were at the council, you're kind of fighting for your own legacy. When you receive the council, you're trying to say, well, where are we going next? And church history tells us that it takes half a century, a century for um, the church to figure out what a council is, right? So 
to use caricatures, you know, the experimental stage in the 1970s after Vatican II, Vatican II runs 62 to 65, the blowback in the 80s and 90s under John Paul II continued a bit in the papacy of Benedict XVI. Now we're at the 60-year mark, 2022, 60 years since the beginning of Vatican II. The natural synthesis, this is Hegel, right? Thesis, antithesis, synthesis. And I think that this worldwide consultation, perhaps the largest worldwide consultation in history, is the natural thing we should be doing now to ask about where do we stand with the mission statement, if I could use that phrase, of Vatican II. How has it been enculturated? What can we learn from from outside Europe where Christianity is dying, if not dead, um, to the global south where Christianity is surviving? And how can each section evangelize each other? So I I think that this is a very natural stage. Well, I appreciate your reflection there and, again, reminding us that getting together and talking is something uh, we Catholics have done for a long time. Uh, Before I let you go, though, you mentioned a book coming out in the summer, and I want to give you a chance to mention that so um, folks can keep their eye out for it uh, on humility. And you say Benedict himself makes an appearance. And so, yeah, what's in that book? Uh, What what inspired you to write it? And, um, yeah, tell us about it. So thank you for allowing me to do that. So in 2016, I published a book called Ageless Wisdom, Lifetime Lessons from the Bible. Being a good Catholic, I had never read the entire Bible and decided that I was going to do that. And it took me four months. um, And I was particularly interested in the interplay of wisdom and the elderly. And humility kept cropping up, but I didn't want to put it into that book because I thought it would complicate the message. Um, And so I began in 2015 and 16 taking notes on humility. And so what this book is, uh, the title will be Humility, the Secret History of a Lost Virtue, um, put out by Georgetown University Press uh, in June or July of 2023, is really a history of humility. It begins in the ancient world where we see dueling notions of humility. One is humiliation. You are less than in the Greco-Roman world, less than the gods, less than the empire. But then you have Judaism, Christianity, and later Islam, who sanctify humility, who make it not a vice, but a virtue. And these two things fight with each other. The medieval period is the period where there's this great synthesis, usually under the title of learned ignorance. It's the golden age of humility. And then, of course, we move into the Enlightenment, the scientific revolution, where sometimes humility falls back, though we have cautionary tales like Mary Shelley's Frankenstein or Christopher Marlowe's Dr. Faustus. And then at the end of the book, I decided to consider not what we can gain from having humility, but what we lose by not having humility. And so I'm asking people to consider the history and to apply it to today. Excellent. Well, that is what I love about a lot of your work is that you're historian and taking these things, but writing for in a way that is accessible and then also applicable to questions and and big questions today. So I'll look forward to, to seeing that uh, when it comes out. We'll have to have you back on to talk about it. Uh, but in the meantime, thank you again so much for fitting us in your uh, busy um, schedule uh, and appreciate your, your candid reflections and the historical perspective as always. So uh, Dr. Chris Polito, thanks so much. Thanks for having me. AMDG is a production of the Jesuit Conference of Canada and the United States. And when we're not working from home, the show is recorded at our headquarters in Washington, D.C. 
AMDG is edited by Marcus Bleach, and our theme music is by Kevin Lasky. The Jesuit Conference communications team is Marcus Bleach, Eric Clayton, Megan Leapsch, Becky Sindelar, and me. Connect with the Jesuits online at jesuits.org, on Twitter at Jesuit News, Instagram at We Are the Jesuits, and Facebook.com slash Jesuits. Sign up for weekly email reflections by visiting jesuits.org slash weekly. If you or someone you know might be called to discern a vocation to the Jesuits, connect with the Jesuit vocation promoter at beajesuit.org. Drop us an email with questions or comments at media at jesuits.org. You can subscribe to the show on iTunes, Spotify, or wherever you listen to podcasts. And as St. Ignatius of Loyola may or may not have said, go and set the world on fire.